It's Thursday, September 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We had a setback this week in vaccine development as AstraZeneca and Oxford University put a hold on their stage three clinical trials of their experimental COVID-19 vaccine. One participant in the UK came down with an unexplained illness, forcing the trial to shut down while an investigation is done. Rebecca Robbins, reporter at Stat News, joins us for what this pause means. Next, the West Coast is on fire this week with major fires in Washington, Oregon, and California. California Governor Gavin Newsom said that so far, at least 2.3 million acres have burned, 20 times what burned in all of last year. But as fire season keeps starting earlier and lasting longer every year, what can be done to prevent these mega fires? Some experts say we need more controlled burns throughout the year to get rid of some of the fire fuel. Elizabeth Weil, reporter at ProPublica, joins us for more. Finally, as universities begin to see outbreaks of coronavirus on their campuses, some are sending students home to quarantine, and that is causing another concern that they could be spreading it back home. Some public health experts are suggesting that it might be better to have them quarantine on campus or nearby to avoid more community spread. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how colleges are handling outbreaks. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's important to keep in mind that clinical holds get placed on trials all the time. This is not uncommon. It's part of vaccine development, but it is a concern and, and it's worth checking out. Joining us now is Rebecca Robbins, reporter, Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. We had a little bit of a setback on vaccine development this week. A Phase three study for the AstraZeneca and Oxford University vaccine candidate had to be put on hold due to a suspected serious adverse reaction in a participant in the UK. We're, we're doing some of the trials here in the United States. This one person happened to be in the United Kingdom, but still they ended up putting a, a hold on the whole thing. So Rebecca, tell us what that means. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how vaccine development works. So this hold is essentially a pause on the trial, a safety mechanism to investigate what happened, to find out why this patient got sick and see how widespread the issue might be and, and how serious it might be. It's important to keep in mind that clinical holds get placed on trials all the time. This is not uncommon. It's part of vaccine development, but it is a concern and, and it's worth checking out. So I think the observation from many folks in the scientific community is, is this is an example of science working the way it is supposed to. One of the interesting things, though, is that since we're following all the news, any tiny little development when it comes to the virus right now, this can seem like a little bit of a setback, especially since the AstraZeneca vaccine candidate was one of the front runners. I think it's the first one that started phase three trials, at least in the UK, and everything's been moving so fast. So you hear, oh, we got to put a hold on it. That could be concerning to some people. It certainly is. And experts we've spoken with do think that this will slow down the trial. It'll slow down enrollment of new patients, as well as dosing for patients who are already in the trial. And again, this is a global shutdown. We're talking the shutdown of the various trials in the United States and several other countries around the world. And so this is something that could jeopardize the effort by the Trump administration to fast track a vaccine. There are certainly other candidates that are, are in the running, but this particular candidate, which was one of the front runners, may be slowed down. 
And all this news came out just as the CEOs of nine of these drug companies that are making these vaccines had a safety pledge and said, you know, we're going to go through the full process and not ask for authorization until things are safe and proved to work well. What do we know about the actual illness that this person suffered to put a pause on this? In my reading, I think someone from the NIH said that it could have involved a spinal problem. So a colleague of mine at STAT, Adam Feuerstein, had an exclusive story on Wednesday, and he was able to get information from a private conference call that the CEO of the drug company behind this vaccine, AstraZeneca, had with investors. And, and during that conference call, the CEO said that the woman in the UK who triggered the shutdown of this trial experienced neurological symptoms. And these symptoms were consistent with something called transverse myelitis, which is a rare but serious spinal inflammatory disorder. The woman's diagnosis has not been confirmed yet, but she's improving and she's likely to be discharged from the hospital as early as Wednesday, the CEO said. And so what happens when these trials are shut down? Obviously, they're going to study what happened here. As you mentioned a little earlier, they're not enrolling new participants and they're stopping the dosing, except for those that might be in the middle of it and might need to continue for some reason or another. What are the next steps? They clear it. They say maybe this just happened coincidentally or, or something, that, and then they can just resume back at full speed again? So we're certainly in the investigation phase at this point. Researchers are trying to figure out what happened, how serious this concern is, and whether it may pose a risk uh, more broadly. So once they're able to figure out what's going on, that could trigger a restart of the trial. And so these pauses can be short, they can be long. We don't have enough information at this point to know how long it may take. And what do we know about this specific vaccine from AstraZeneca and Oxford University? Because I know that some of the front runners, they're developing different types, some that are using mRNA and, and different other platforms for the vaccine. What do we know about this one specifically? So this vaccine uses an adenovirus that carries a gene for one of the proteins in the virus that causes COVID-19. And so the idea is that the adenovirus will induce the immune system to generate a protective response against the virus. And this is a platform that hasn't been used in an approved vaccine. So there's nothing on the market using this platform, but it has been tested in experimental vaccines against other viruses such as Ebola. Well, I mean, it's interesting to know that at least we were able to catch something, put the brakes on it. All of the early reporting that we had out of this vaccine candidate was fairly positive. There was other side effects, fever, headaches, minor things. They were deemed mild or moderate, and everything kind of went away over the course of the study. So hopefully what happened with this one could be an outlier, and that they can get back to it and see the larger part of the trial through. Rebecca Robbins, reporter at Stat News, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. Historic uh, is a term we seemingly often use here in the state of California, uh, but these numbers bear uh, fruit to that assertion that this is historic. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weil, reporter at ProPublica covering climate and California. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thank you. The West Coast right now is just on fire. There's fires happening in California, Oregon, Washington. As far as California goes, there's been weeks of fires, really. Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday said that 2.3 million acres have burned so far. That's 20 times 
what burned in all of last year. And we keep hearing these things. The fire season is getting worse every year. It's starting earlier, lasting longer. There's a lot of problems every year now in California when it comes to fires. But when we talk about fires and how to prevent them and how to prevent these mega fires, there's a lot of science already on the books on how to try to mitigate some of this stuff. A lot of it has to do with controlled burning, things that we don't really do throughout the year. These big fires take place and it just kind of overwhelms us. But Elizabeth, tell us about some of the reporting that you did and how we can get these mega fires under control. Well, I talked to a lot of climate scientists and forest ecologists last week. And the science of what healthy forests need to do to not blow up in mega fires like this has been really clear for years. Basically, forests need to burn and they need to burn at regular intervals. And we either need to do that in a controlled way, as indigenous Californians did for centuries, or it's going to burn out of control like we're seeing now. So this is not news. Everybody in the field knows it. And we have just not been doing enough controlled burns to get us to a safe, sustainable place in California. And this is the result. Even when big fires start. So obviously we want to protect homes and people and infrastructure, things like that. But if it's in a wide open area, some people say might as well let some of that burn off. And what we do when our firefighters and and we're thankful for them and all, but when things start happening, we just put everything out as much as we can rather than letting some of that controlled burn happen. Cal Fire's policy is full suppression. And that sounds nice until you think about the fact that forests are just going to burn. So if we don't let them burn when they need to, they're going to all burn at once in an out-of-control way. So in an area where you've had a fire in the past, when a new fire comes along and hits that zone, there won't be so much to burn and it'll go out naturally. And if you haven't created any of those sort of dampers and dead ends for wildfire, then they just keep burning and burning. Let's talk a little bit about the big business of fire suppression, especially in California. You had a few statistics about how Cal Fire, before 1999, never really spent more than $100 million. And ever since then, it's just been increasing exponentially how much money we're spending on fire suppression. So firefighting is big business in California, which it needs to be. You know, we need firefighters. We need to protect our homes. We need to protect people. But it has grown incredibly for years, partly in response to the fires we're seeing. But it is also putting us in a situation where we are seeing these big fires because we have been suppressing. And a lot of the money that goes to the fire suppression actually goes to aviation. We see the big planes dropping tons of fire retardant on big parts of land. That's one of the biggest costs in all this as well. Yes. And they, (laughs) those airdrops are the cause of much discussion and debate in the firefighting community. They are incredibly expensive. They make great photographs. They make a lot of citizens feel really good, but they are not always that effective. So we spend tons and tons of money putting on what looks like a military campaign against a fire that is not what the state needs at all times. I do want to emphasize that we do need to protect people. We need to protect people's homes, but we need to let the wilderness burn. Governor Gavin Newsom last month put out a memorandum of understanding saying that he knows the state needs to burn more. 
So why don't we do this more now? You know, we don't do it for a lot of reasons. One of them is that people don't like smoke. So when you arrange for a controlled burn, there will be smoke and the residents in that area often don't like it. We also have clean air policies, which means that if you are all set to do a controlled burn, but the air quality is bad that day for other reasons because of cars and agriculture, you maybe cannot do your controlled burn because it is categorized as a man-made event. And of course, it puts a lot of particulate matter up into the air. And then there are practical concerns for people whose jobs it is to light these controlled fires. They are not fully protected. There are liability issues in California that don't exist in the same way, say, in Florida, where there's a lot more controlled burning. Yeah, if something goes wrong, obviously, or the winds take it another way and then homes do become endangered, yeah, that's obviously going to be a big problem. So it does seem that we are kind of in the hole with the way this should be working as far as these controlled burns. How much do we need to actually burn to get kind of caught up so that we're not facing this every year? You know, it will take decades to get caught up. We need to burn millions and millions of acres. But what we really need to do is start and we need to have good policy that protects us and prepares us for the future. Elizabeth Weil, reporter at ProPublica covering climate and California. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. They're not always testing students before they head back off campus. And the students aren't all necessarily quarantined, you know, upon arrival back home. So they could be spreading the virus asymptomatically when they head back to live at home with their parents. Joining us now is Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me. West Virginia University on Monday was the latest university that announced that they're going to suspend in-person classes at its main campus because of concern over recent spikes in coronavirus infections. It's been all over the map when it comes to going back to school this season so far. In a lot of cases, colleges are either can send students home, sometimes they're giving students the option if they want to stay on campus or in their dorms or whatever, or go back home. And in all of that, they could be creating a new threat by sending sick kids home back to their own communities and maybe spreading the virus even more. Melissa, tell us a little bit about how colleges are handling all of this. The big concern here is about safety, safety of students and staff on campus, but also of the larger community. So some schools now have reopened, started up classes, and then realized sometimes a week, two weeks in, this just isn't working, that the COVID case numbers are just spiking too much. They can't really control the outbreaks. Maybe they're running out of quarantine space on campus. So they're sending students back home. They're shutting down dorms or they're at least trying to what they call de-densify. The problem or the concern with that is they're not always testing students before they head back off campus. And the students aren't all necessarily quarantined you know, upon arrival back home. So they could be spreading the virus asymptomatically when they head back to live at home with their parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles and bringing it to different parts of the country. One of the schools that you focused on for your piece was the California State University, Chico. Tell us how they handled their outbreak and and sending kids back home. How did they handle the whole thing? So Cal State Chico, most of their classes were already online, but there's still some that 
kind of needed to be in person because of equipment or things like that. They had about 750 students living on campus. And their uh, again, the case numbers started to rise. They weren't doing surveillance testing of asymptomatic students. So it was if you had symptoms, then you'd go to the health center and then get referred to potentially be tested for COVID-19. And they had about 30 cases or nearly 30 cases when they decided this isn't sustainable. They said, you know, that the exposures are increasing and could be devastating to campus. So the response was, let's send people home. The county, Butte County, had been overseeing contact tracing and testing and things like that. Uh, and the president of the university said, if somebody does show symptoms when they get home, the expectation is that the county, wherever they are now, will take care of it, will handle the contact tracing. It's kind of no longer their responsibility once yeah. the students have left campus and left the county. And I'm sure a lot of things get lost in the cracks when something like that happens. Another school you focused on was Colorado College in Colorado Springs. They put three dorms under quarantine after students started testing positive for COVID-19. And then there was a bunch of students that opted to quarantine back home. So again, some kids <laughs> staying on campus, some kids just leaving. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to go hop on a plane and head home. The school got, uh, had guidance from the county health officials to say, you know, if you live close enough that a parent can come drive, pick you up, bring you back home, you promise not to stop at, you know, a roadside restaurant or something, and then you stay in your house for 14 days, you can do that at home. And yes, there is a risk for the parent to do that for sure. But the school said that one of their considerations there was the mental health of students, right? Sitting in a room alone for 14 days is really difficult. It's trying, it's exhausting, it's mentally draining and a very strange experience for an 18, 19 year old. So they said for some of these students, it was just big picture, kind of healthier for them to go do that at home. How many cases are we seeing on college campuses? Because, and I know it's different everywhere, but in Colorado College in the story, you know, there was only about a dozen positive cases, mainly on campus. And it affected less than 1% of the student population. So I know that the schools don't want an outbreak there and all, but it is affecting a small number of students in some cases. That was one of the smaller case counts I had seen that prompted really more dramatic action from a school. You have other schools, major public universities, University of Alabama, South Carolina, Ohio State, and others where the case counts are in the high triple digits or low four-digit numbers, you know, seeing over a thousand cases with hundreds or thousands of students quarantined or isolated. Those numbers are frightening. They're significant numbers. They are out of a, student, a much larger student population than Colorado College has, but there's a few kind of numbers to be looking at on the school's dashboards where they update this information. One is the total case count. The other is what percentage of tests are coming back positive especially if the school's doing surveillance testing. If they're testing asymptomatic students and a lot of students are coming back with positive results, that's really disconcerting because you just it's hard to contact trace for that. It's really hard to know where all of these students were possibly shedding the virus and spreading the virus if they had no symptoms. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.